Okay, hello, hello. So good to see everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for Chabura Public Shiur. Today we have the privilege of having with us Dr. Shana Strouch Sheikh, and together we'll be exploring the important principle of Kavanah regarding the performance of mitzvot. About our speaker, Dr. Shana is a lecturer in rabbinic literature in the multidisciplinary department of Jewish studies at Bar Ilan University and teaches Talmud and Jewish law at the Visha Institute, New York. In 2011, she became the first woman to be awarded a PhD in Talmud from Bernard Ravel Graduate School, Yeshiva University. She also studied in Stern College's GPATS from 2002 to 2007. She's the author of Intention in Talmudic Law Between Thought and Deed. Her upcoming monography is entitled Woman in Rabbinic Law and Narrative, Divine Currents in Babylonian and Palestinian Texts. In Chabura News, as you all know, we recently put out our book on Shavuot, so if you have not yet, uh, make sure to order yourself a copy and have it by you uh, in time for the Moed. Also, stay tuned. We're almost uh, uh, putting out our new membership. Um, so stay tuned for that. And whether you are the 10% who join us live or the 90% who watch the recording, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Professor, for being with us and enjoy the shiur. Thank you so much for having me today or tonight, depending on where you are. Um, so today we're going to talk about um, a principle that appears, thank you, in uh, only in the, the above leaf for the first time, and that's a principle called mitzvot in trichot kavana, the performance of a ritual mitzvot, because really talking about rituals, does not require inattention in order to fulfill them. Um, so what what... What uh, we are going to do is trace the development of this uh, principle, see how it came to be in the Babli, um, how it's attributed to one of the most uh, prominent uh, rabbis in the Babylonian Talmud, the fourth generation Amora Rava. And we're going to see how uh, not only does this break from uh, early rabbinic uh, precedent, but it also breaks from other uh, halachot, which Rava issues, um, and, and, and in other areas of halacha, namely the violation of isurim, he actually a, a places a very a, a prominent role on a person's a purpose and in attention. So um, we're going to start with, uh, let me share my screen right now, with the sources. Um, okay, so we're going to start with uh, a few uh, mitzvot that appear in the Mishnah, which are very uh, clear that uh, kavana in uh, in attention is reacquired. So, um, first one we have is the Mesechet Brachot, Batorah. If someone is reading the Torah. And it seems that they happen to be reading the portion of the Torah, um, which has Shema Yisrael in it. They're reading Devarim. And then it just so happens that it's also Zman HaMikra. Higiyah Zman HaMikra. It happens to be the time that they have to recite Shema. Im bo yatsa, lo yatsa. So if they, Kivenli Bo literally means they direct their heart. If the person directs their heart, and it seems to be, to fulfill the mitzvah to recite Shema, then they fulfill the, the mitzvah. Vimla, but if they do not direct their heart, they do not fulfill the obligation. So again, it uh, doesn't define what it means to, you know, to be mechavein libo. You know, what does that mean? But it does, it, it would seem to be to do the mitzvah. And we have a similar directive with regard to blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Um, I really like this Mishnah. So someone is uh, uh, going past a shul or their, or their house is near a shul, and again, it happens to be Rosh Hashanah, and they hear the sound of the shofar being a pallone. So I like this Mishnah because I live right near a shul, and when I had given birth to one of my children, I could just hear the shofar being a blown from my terrace. So um, you're, you're passing by a shul, and you hear the shofar. 
and it happens to be Rosh Hashanah, oh, Kol Megillah, or you're walking past a shul, and it happens to be a perm, and you hear them reading the Megillah inside. Once again, we have that same language we saw in Brachot. If you direct your heart, if he directs his heart, he fulfills his obligation. But if he does not direct his heart, he does not fulfill his obligation. And now it tells us something very significant. Even though you have two people doing the same exact action, they both heard, this person heard, and this person heard. This one had intent, and this one did not have intent. Meaning it's not just about an action. Your action alone is not what defines whether you fulfill the, the mitzvah. You also have to have it be accompanied by a proper uh, covenant, a proper mindset. Now, again, it uh, doesn't say what this mindset is. Um, now, I just brought you source three. A similar point is made in Mishnah Megillah, Mesechet Megillah, and now you know this is the location of uh, Megillah S there. So it, it it just brings the same point. Your someone is writing Megillat Esther, or they're being a Dorish, they're expounding it, or they're correcting it, making sure they're dotting all the T's and the I's, or all the detagation are in place. Once again, and it happens to be a permit, it happens to be the time when you have to read the Megillah. Again, in it all depends on did you direct your heart or not. If you did, you fulfill the mitzvah. If not, you don't. So again, we don't have a definition of what this means to, to direct one's heart. However, very interestingly, right after our Mishnah here in Rosh Hashanah, the, and this is, you know, Parik, uh, Gimel the third, a Parik of, of Rosh Hashanah is all about uh, the obligation to sound the shofar and how you do so. Um, and then at the end of that, we have kind of seemingly out of nowhere, uh, source number four, Sorry, let me make this bigger. Uh, Midrashic, a text, um, brings this, it brings a uh, homily. So this homily is, it's from Shishamot, the famous Pasuk, I think it's uh, famous with the War of Amalek. So it says, you know, Amalek came and waged a war on the, uh, on the Israelites in the desert. And it said, as long as Moshe raised his hands, then Israel was victorious. And when he lowered his hands, the Amalekim, they, they, they were the ones who were victorious. So we know Aaron and Hor had to hold up Moshe's hands for him. So that's the Pasuk. The Mishnah here asks, What do you mean his, his hands, you know, is, if his hands were up, they wanted, and if they were lowered, they lost. Do the hands of Moshe make war or break a war? What does him raising his hands have to do with the victory of the Israelites? So the Mishnah answers us, So it's to tell you, as long as Israel looked upwards, and they subjugated their hearts to their father in heaven, then they were strong, they were victorious. And if not, they fell. Okay, so... Um, this is this midrash, and then and it brings a similar uh, homily with regard to the nachash hanechoshet, the uh, copper serpent that Moshe made when um, the Israelites were uh, stricken with this uh, terrible plague. And again, you know, and, and it says whoever looked at it was healed, and whoever wasn't, you know, wasn't, and whoever uh, didn't look at it wasn't healed. So again, it asks, does looking at a copper uh, serpent heal you or not? And again, is to tell you, is to tell you as long as Israel looks upward and they subjugate their heart to their father in heaven, they are healed. But if, if they don't do that, they are erased. So this, and then, Right after this homily, it goes back to the halacha. Um, a deaf person, a person who does not have their full facility, uh, uh, faculties, and a child cannot 
fulfill the obligation on behalf of others. Meaning a child can't blow the shofar um, and fulfill the obligation for other uh, people. So we have this agadah here as sandwiched in between the halacha. Why is this here? It's nice, it's, you know, to give a nice uh, break in the law, let's take a little pause and have a nice homily break. Um, so if we pay attention uh, carefully to the language here, we'll see this isn't just happens to be here. Um, there's a very significant uh, connection between these homilies and the halacha. What's that connection? It says, They subjugate their heart. And we find a similar word was found in our halacha. Do you direct your heart? Now, this might seem you know, not significant, but actually a, a parallels of these two homilies um, that are found, you know, with the war of Amalek and the Nachash HaNechoshet, which are found in the Mechilta de Rebbe Ishmael and the Chilta de Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai, two works of Midrash Halacha. Those are from the time of the Mishnah. It's the same rabbis who wrote the Mishnah. They don't have this term, Mishabdim et Liban. It just says, you know, they, uh, sub, you know, they do the will of of a uh, God, but they don't have the reference to heart. So it seems like there is a purposeful reworking of this agada to make it fit this uh, context. So what is that? Why is it here? So it seems, you know, we have this halacha. If you hear a shofar, you only fulfill the mitzvah if you direct your heart. That is followed by this agada, which tells you as that as long as Israel subjugated their hearts to God, then they were victorious and they won. Why did the editor of the Mishnah, why did Rabbi Yudhanasi uh, put this here? And there are two ways to understand this. Perhaps the point of the, of the Agadah is to define the halacha. What does it mean to be mechaven, one's lave to God? It means to mishabed, mishabdim at how do you direct your heart to God? It's to subjugate your heart to God. And it's very, you know, and, and, and there's a thematic uh, connection as well. What are we doing when we hear the shofar blown on Rosh Hashanah? We want to, you know, we're uh, pleading for our life, uh, pleading for, for a giveness. And what does this Midrash say? As long as you subjugate your, your heart, then, then you'll get salvation. The Israelites will be healed. We will win wars. We'll be victorious. And, and perhaps that's what the juxtaposition of this halacha here about, you know, having to direct your heart with this midrash about subject again, your heart is meant to do. So that's one possibility, one possible way to understand this juxtaposition that this agada defines the halacha. There is another uh, possibility of what the connection would be and why this is uh, placed here. And it could be, well, there's two different ways to uh, observe the halacha. You can have what we call, you know, letter of the law. Letter of the law is, sorry, you have to direct your heart. And what does direct your heart mean? It might just mean to do the mitzvah. If I'm walking past a shul and I hear the shofar, it's not enough to just hear it. I also have to want to do the mitzvah. And as long as I do that, yatsa. And that's the letter of the law, and that's good enough. But then what does the Midrash uh, tell us? There is a lefnim mishirat hadin. There's something more you can aspire to. And what's that? You can subjugate your whole heart and your whole being to God. Not just, you know, it's not enough just to, I just want to do the mitzvah. I also want to feel the, feel this. I want to subjugate myself to God and, you know, change my ways and do whatever I can to be a better a person. And so do you have to do that? No. And that's not something what most people can aspire to do, but it is something that we can aspire to do. So you may call this the Vidyavad or letter of the law and lifnim shirat hadin. And that does also fit with, uh, uh, you know, what many define as the role of the narrative and agada in law. There's the letter of the law, and then there's the way people can uh, practice it and other, uh, other values that can be reflected in the stories that we tell. Okay, so that's the Mishnah. Now, either way, 
is very clear from the Mishnah law and the Agadah here, that in order to do at least these three mitzvot, you have to have a kavanah. It's not enough to just do the act. And that's exactly what this Mishnah says. Two people can do the same exact act, zeshama v'zeshama, but if one does not, then the one who didn't direct their heart is not going to fulfill the mitzvah. An act alone is not enough. You also need something in, in eternal to go with it. And by the way, why heart? In the uh, ancient world, the heart is the seed of the intellect. So you find that referenced in the Torah as well. So when they speak about uh, thoughts, it's always uh, located in the heart. So that is the Mishnah. Um, that seems pretty straightforward. Yet, um, and I'll just, I didn't I'll bring it here in the Yeru Shalmi. We really have the same thing. It goes in the same direction. And it makes a diuk that, you know, the fact that it says the person is passing shows that only if you're a passing, you have to have uh, a specific uh, kavanah. But if you are standing there, says the Yerushalmi, we can assume that you have the proper kavana. Because the fact that you are standing there next to a shul, listening to the shofar being blown, that indicates that you want to do the mitzvah as well. Okay, so the Yerushalmi goes in the same direction as the Mishnah. When we go to the Bavli, we see something very uh, different take place. I will, let me split the screen here so I can have both the Hebrew and the English for those. Who want to have that along? Okay. Oh, sorry. I'm not sure. I have it somewhere else. Okay. I'll get that in. I'm moving for you. Ah, having computer issues. Okay. So um, I'll read and uh, translate, and then I'll I'll give you the English. And or you know what? Well, oh, I'll 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 show you the uh, Hebrew, and then I'll share English with you separately. Okay. So the the this is the Bavli on our Mishnah we saw about having to have Kavana when blowing the Shemuel. They sent to the father of Shemuel. Shemuel is the very a prominent first generation Babylonian Amora. So this is his father from you know really early Amora, almost pre Amora. So they sent the following to Shemuel's father. Kafu v'achal matzah yatsa. If someone of horses, a Jew, to eat matzah, clearly on a Pesach, uh, yatsa. You fulfill your mitzvah to eat matzah. Now the Gemara, I left this out. Asked, well, who's who's the one of horsing you? If you'll say it's a demon who forced you, and it's really interesting, the reference to a demons we find only in the Babylonian Talmud, not the Yerushalmi. Many people have written about this. So if you say it's a demon, that uh, can't be because that's like a, one who doesn't have their wits and one who doesn't have their wits that does not have to do any mitzvah. Rather, Who's one of horses? Says the Gemara, a Persian. Okay, so a non-Jew forces a Jew to eat matzah on a Pesach. So what's the implication? The Jew didn't want to eat it. The Jew didn't want to do the mitzvah of eating matzah on a Pesach, but they ate it nonetheless. And what's the law? Yatzah. They fulfill their obligation to eat matzah on a Pesach. Okay, so that's the ruling said by Shmuel. Rava then, fourth generation, Amora says, makes the following inference. Amar Rava, Zotomeret, what does this mean? The implication of this is, Hatokea Lashir Yatsa. That if you blow the shofar to make music, or Rashi has a gear, say you blow it to Lashade, ward off a demonic attack, it seems. You fulfill your obligation, meaning so you're blowing the shofar not to fulfill your mitzvah of takiyat shofar from Rosh Hashanah. Rather, you're blowing the shofar for some other reason. You want to play a nice song on your shofar or you want to do some demonic incantation. But whatever the reason is, the reason is not to do the mitzvah, but based on the father of Shemuel's rule, Rabbah says, you fulfill your obligation on Rosh Hashanah. 
So ask the Gemara, Pishhita, isn't this obvious? You know, obviously, if you're forced to eat matzah to fulfill your mitzvah on Pesach, then it's also obvious that you, if you blow the shofar Rosh Hashanah, even for some other reason, you also fulfill your mitzvah. So the Gemara gives the Hamahu de Atema. It's now going to tell you why this isn't obvious. And in uh, doing so, it's also going to tell us the, the difference between these two um, mitzvot. So what's the difference between them and why, and why was it not obvious? There, in the case of uh, Pesach, what's the mitzvah? The, the Torah tells you to eat matzah. The mitzvah is to eat matzah. It's, the Torah doesn't care how you ate it or why you, uh, why you ate it. The mitzvah is to eat it. The ha'achal did that. So even if someone forced you to eat it, the effect is the same. And you can even say, you know, your body got the same new nutrients from eating matzah, whether you were forced to eat it or you willingly ate it. You did the, uh, you did the action that the Torah acquires, and that's to eat. Of a hachab, when it comes to shofar, it's not just about hearing the shofar. Why? Because what does the Torah say? It says, zechron tur'aketif. The Torah says it's a remembrance of a, of a blowing. So that indicates that it's not enough to have an action, but there has to be some, some sort of memory action going on with it as well. So maybe you would have thought that it's not enough to just blow the shofar, but you also have to blow it for the reason of to get the shofar and rush Hashanah. So kamashmala. So that's why Rabbi had to teach this. Okay, so you maybe would have thought it's obvious that you could blow the shofar for another reason. Rabbi says it's not obvious. Now, what are you all thinking? What do you mean it's obvious that you can blow the shofar for another reason? We have an explicit mission which says that you only fulfill your obligation on Rosh Hashanah if you have kavana, if you kivainly bow, if one kivainly bow to hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And the Gemara is going to get to that. But first, it just wants to make a general a principle. So Rabbi just said, but the Gemara, the redactors of the Gemara, now generate a principle which underlies Rabbi's rule. And what is that? Alma Kesava Rabbi. Consequently, Rabbi holds mitzvot ain't tzricho kavana, that the performance of mitzvot, and again, it really seems to mean a ritual mitzvot, does not require intention. So here we have the formulation of this rule. Um, and it's inferred from Rava's rule. Now, it's not an off inference because now Rava's rule is going to be a challenge based on other areas of, of halacha. So even though he only actually formulated it in regard to the mitzvah of shofar, the uh, challenges are based on other areas of halacha. So what are the uh, challenges? Everything we already saw. Mitzvah in kavanah. What about the Mishnah in Brachot? We read this before in Mesecha Brachot. If you're reading the Torah, you're reading the, the Pasuk of Shema, and it's the time of the, and, and then it's the time of the recitation of Shema. You only fulfilled your mitzvah if you had Kabbana. It says you need Kabbana. So what do you mean, Mitzvah in Shrichot Kabbana? So what does the Gemara say? No, no. You actually misunderstood the Mishnah before. My so my lucky bainly say, isn't this you have kabana to fulfill the mitzvah? Says the Gemara, no. Lo, you got it wrong. What's the kavana that the Mishnah requires? Likrot. It's just a very a basic kavana to do the act to read the Pasuk Shema Yisrael. And then says the Gemara, what do you mean, Likrot? Hakakari, that's exactly what the person was uh, doing. It says in the Mishnah. You're reading the Torah. Obviously, you have kavanah to read the Torah, so you don't need a special kavanah to read. So what do you mean that's all you need? What do you mean that imkevein libo means kavanah to read? It says, no. What is a person doing? Meaning, here when it said, a person's reading the Torah, what did it really mean? One's reading the portion of the Torah, for the purpose of proofreading. 
That's really what the Gemara is saying this means. You thought it meant, you know, I was reading the Torah to read the Torah. But no, what did, what did it mean? I was reading the Torah to proofread. Then he has man mikra, the time of its reading came up. So what do I have to do? I have to put my mind to it. What, what, what do I put my mind to it? To read. That is how the Bavli reinterprets uh, this Mishnah to conform with Rabbah. And it now uh, does that which each with, with, with the other cases as well. It then brings up our Mishnah, the, the, the very Mishnah of this Sugya. A person's passing by a shul or the house is near shul. And again, again, you're standing by a shul, you hear the shofar. You, you only fulfill the mitzvah if you intend your heart. My love in Kivain Libo, let's say, doesn't this mean you had kavana to fulfill the mitzvah? No, but once again, no, you got it wrong. It meant Lishmoa. You just had to have kavana to hear it. Lishmoa, Hashama, it says the person who heard it. That's exactly what it said. You are Shama Kol Shofar. So you did hear it. So what do you mean you need kavana to hear it? So what does the Gemara say? Savor chamor ba'almahu. This shama kol shofar. You didn't think it was a shofar. What did this uh, person in the mission think it was? They thought it was the praying of a donkey. A donkey. I don't know. Um, so what must you have a Havana for? You have to know it's a shofar. You don't have to do anything more than that. You don't have to want to do a mitzvah. You don't have to want to think, you know, I must be uh, better this year. All you have to do is be aware of the fact that you hear a shofar. If you hear the sound of the shofar and you think if it's a donkey, that wouldn't work. So once again, we'll put it in here. How does it understood? Daniel, you heard the sound of the shofar in Rosh Hashanah and thought it was a donkey. Okay, and so how do you fulfill the mitzvah, says the Mishnah, according to the Bavli? You have to pay attention to know it's a chauffeur being blown. That's all you need to do. So meaning, how does the Gemara re-read all these Mishnayot? That what is the Kavanah? that the Mishnah requires, it's a very minimal one. You just have to be aware of the fact that you're uh, doing an action which constitutes a mitzvah. As long as you're aware of the fact that you're doing the act which constitutes the mitzvah, that is adequate, okay? Um, And the Gemara goes on a challenging rava. Now his... uh, Older contemporary Abaye uh, challenges him. And I want to read it just because the implications are important. But yeah, so but so the the question is a bit uh, complicated. So what is that? So Abaye asks, and then it asks one more a question, um, this time from a Paraita, that again, that you have to both the one who blows the shofar and the one who hears the shofar has to have kavana. So says the Gemara, obviously the one who uh, blows the shofar knows that they're blowing a shofar. So what else could kavana mean other than kavana to do the mitzvah? So again, it says, no, that person was just trying to make little uh, barking sounds, but not sound a shofar as is required on Rosh Hashanah. So again, the kavana reacquired is a very minimal one. You just have to be aware of the fact that you're doing uh, a mitzvah, which, uh, I mean, you are doing an action, which happens to be a mitzvah as well. And it's at the time that the mitzvah has to be done. But more than that, you're not obligated. Um, the final, so the final challenge to Reva, these three were all anonymous. The, this fourth one is now brought by Abaye, where he says, well, according to you, Reva, Someone who sleeps in the sukkah on the eighth day, meaning Ashmini Atzeret, meaning when there's no longer an obligation to, uh, to dwell in the sukkah, should get malkut, should get the lashes. Why? 
because, okay, this, this involves a few adepts here. You no longer have an obligation to dwell in the sukkah once it's Shemini Atzeret on the eighth day. Okay, so um, if you do a dwell in the sukkah on the eighth day, says Abaye, you are uh, violating Bala Tosif. You're adding to a mitzvah. Why? Even though it's not the time you have to do the mitzvah, the very fact that you do a mitzvah, even if you don't want to do a mitzvah, you do do the mitzvah. Meaning because you are, as, as long as you uh, dwell in the sukkah, you fulfill the mitzvah of uh, dwelling in the sukkah. However, there's no longer a mitzvah to uh, dwell in the sukkah. So now you are fulfilling a mitzvah, but since it's not the time for it, you are uh, violating adding to the mitzvah. Okay. So is that a clear little uh, complicated there? Okay. So if you can fulfill a mitzvah without kavana to do so, so that means, you know, and, and because by just a doing and by just doing an action, which, which constitutes a mitzvah, that means you fulfill the mitzvah. So that means anytime you go in a sukkah, when it's not the holiday of Sukkot, you fulfill a mitzvah, but since it's not the time of the mitzvah, you are a, a violating adding to mitzvot, bal tosif, which is a biblical prohibition. So Rava, so three answers are offered in the name of Rava. And there's, um, you know, so either it's three possibilities of what he said or three different traditions of what he said. So the three answers are, number one, Amar lo she'ani omer mitzvot eno, eno overalim ela bismanam. You can only av- violate the prohibition of Baal Tosif of adding to mitzvot when it's the time of the mitzvah's performance. So once Sukkot is over, you can't add to it anymore. It's over. That's answer number one. But then Rava gives another answer. Answer number two, Rava Amar Latzeit Lobai Kavana. To fulfill, when I say mitzvah don't require kavana, it's only to fulfill a, a mitzvah. To fulfill a positive uh, commandment, you don't have to need kavana to do so. Just doing the action is enough. You'll fulfill your obligation. But la avor, when it comes to violations, on the other hand, ba'i kavana, that does indeed require kavana. It's not enough to just do an uh, action, which is a prohibition. You also have to want to uh, violate. You have to purposely want to do a violation. Um, but, to, but to just do an action which constitutes a, a violation, that does require kavana. And then he adds a third eh, answer, um, which is to uh, violate Baal uh, Tosif to violate adding to a command, you both need kavana and and it has to be at the uh, proper time. But it's this uh, second answer which really interests me here. Um, And why is that? So first of all, um, we see Rava introduces this, uh, you know, it's, you know, while it seems like a pretty straightforward halacha, mitzvot ain't trichot kavana, we see that it's diametrically opposite to mission, mission law. The mission was very clear about, again, at least these three mitzvot. You only fulfill the mitzvah of, of a kriyat shema, of, of a tekiyat shofar, of reading the Megillah on Purim with kavana. Um, and Rava says something which is, the exact opposite of what the Mishnah says. And we see how the Gemara has to work very hard to make Rava conform with the Mishnayot. And, you know, I mean, while it does manage to, these certainly are not what one would have thought these Mishnayot meant at first a glance. You know, I, I don't think when we read this Mishnah, you're reading the Torah, the, you know, I don't think the, uh, you know, obvious read of it is you're reading the Torah for the purpose of uh, proofreading. And then libo just means I have to want to do the act. Or, you know, someone's passing by a shul and they hear the shofar. I don't think the obvious read would be, and they heard a sound of a shofar, which they thought to be a donkey. 
Um, and so what's keeping libo? You have to want to do the mitzvah. I mean, you have to want to do the act. I mean, you, sorry, you, 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 you have to be aware of it being a chauffeur as opposed to a junkie. That's not what the uh, obvious meaning of each of these mission, mission, are, but we see how the Gemara um, uh, is able to harmonize these Mishnayot with Rava's approach, though it's does, it does seem to go against their plain meaning. And again, when we look at that Midrash that was brought, that certainly uh, bolsters the uh, evidence that this is something more than just being aware of the fact that you're blowing a chauffeur, but it's reacquiring something more meaningful. Um, and indeed, when we go to just the Halach on this, we have this here. Okay, yeah, the riff. He just, so when the Riff uh, codifies this in his rewritten uh, Gemara, what does he write? So th- this is the Riff, um, our sugya we just read. Both the person who sounds the shofar and the person who hears the shofar has to have kavana. And then it uh, goes to the very end of the sugya. Amarle Rebbe Zera Lishamaye. Rebbe Zera said to his uh, servant, Hit kaven vet hakali. You know, have kavana and sound the shofar for me. So he thinks the sounder also needs to have kavana. And that's really the end of it. And Basically, what do we see from this riff here? He completely leaves Rava out. The riff disregards this entire middle uh, section here. And I just brought you right after, you know, Rava's back in a four. The end of the sugya is what we, the riff just read. Amar it's kavein takali have kavana and blow the shofar for me. So the riff leaves out this entire section. Um, and, you know, maybe because both, uh, you know, the fact that Rava goes against Mishnahic law, but also there's something a little, one might say, on a heddling maybe about Rava's approach that you don't need Kavana to do a mitzvah. I mean, that's kind of a strange thing, one may think. You know, I think we tend to think that mitzvot should be done with a certain level of devotion you know and i think many of us think if we just uh, uh prayed and weren't paying attention or we're just as dating in shul and just you know went through the emotions that is not a very meaningful religious experience and in fact one of the critiques of early uh, uh, christians against the uh, jews was that jews are so uh technical they just care about actions. They just, you know, are very picky about the halakha. They don't care about what's inside of a person. And a sugi like this would certainly add a fuel to that. You know, I mean, you don't need kavana to do a mitzvah. It's enough to just be aware of the action. Don't we think that religious actions require something more than just the surface act? So that's just one uh, question. And again, the other question of how can Rava contradict the Mishnah? I mean, the Mishnah says uh, straight out, and yes, the Gemara went through hoops to try to support Rava. But we see that even that the Rif, it seems, wasn't impressed by that and left that all out. Now, the, the Baal or the, the Serachia Halevi, um, always a Pashtan, at least what I've seen, he says, no, the halacha is like Rava. The Ramban in the Chamot Hashem says, no, the halacha isn't like Rava. Mitzvot need kavana. And even Rava didn't think this. He was just, you know, explaining the opinion of the father of Ashavuel. So, um, you know, even in medieval times, this issue is not said. And we see opinions on both sides of the matter. So one, how does Rava contradict the Mishnah? Two, Rava seems to go against uh, religious, I guess I'd say, inclination, or maybe the better word is intuition we would have that religious acts should have something more to it than just going through the 
oceans of uh, doing an app. Now, a third uh, question I want to add here is that Rava's disregard for Kavana here in the case of mitzvot actually goes against his more uh, a general approach when it comes to halacha. For Rava, uh, and I have a whole uh, chapter devoted to this, is one that he is a kind of exceptional and consistently requiring that one act with kavana, with intention, in order to be held liable. So just, I brought you just a few examples here in Source 11. Okay, so just a few uh, cases here. Sure. It's more. It was said, Let's say someone worships idols due to love and fear. What does love and fear mean? The Ramam says either love and fear of another uh, person or love and fear, you know, or of the form of idolatry. Either way, you're not uh, uh, doing it because you want to, because you think that this idol is going to, you know, give you a blessing. You just, you love this a person or you just think it's a nice uh, looking idol. So that's the, your reason for uh, doing it. Abaye Amar Chayev. Abaye says, I don't care why you did it. You're liable. You worshiped idolatry. Rava, our same Rava we just met before, Amar Pater. Rava says you're exempt from idolatry. So what's the source of their machlogan? Abaye says you're liable because I don't care why you did it. You served this idol. You shipped it. Rava Marpater. Why does Rava say this person's exempt? If you accepted this idol as a god, then yeah, you'd be liable. But Elo, but if you didn't accept it as a god, then Oh, you're not liable. It's, a, it's not enough to just do the act of idol worship. You also have to want to accept this idol as a god, meaning your kavana matters. It's not your action is not enough. For Abaye, your action is enough. Okay. One more example. This is also in Tractate Sanhedrin. Um, so this is a very famous sugya on when a Jew is obligated to uh, martyr themselves or uh, violate a prohibition. So the law is uh, generally now uh, uh, summarizing it that the, that there's a a big three abe roads: idolatry, uh, sexual indiscretions, and uh, murder. A Jew must let themselves be killed rather than uh, violate all other violations a Jew can uh, violate and not let themselves be killed. However, says uh, one tradition according to Rabbi Yochanan, if the violation occurs in a public, then a Jew is not allowed to uh, violate and must let themselves be uh, killed. So ask the Gemara here, Ha-Esther Befarhesehavim. Wait a minute. A Jew has to choose a martyrdom over a violation if the violation occurs in a public. What about Hester, the biblical character Esther? Now, what exactly is her sin? Let's just keep it simple. She married a non-Jew. Now, it says in the Gemara here, no matter what the avera is, no matter what the violation is, if it's occurring in a public sphere, the Jew must let themselves be killed and not violate. So how did... Hester uh, violate, um, you know, uh, do this uh, violation in a public and not choose the path of martyrdom. Now you can say she's because she had to save the Jewish people. Well, she didn't know she was going to save the Jewish uh, people. When she married Ahasuerus, she should have let herself be uh, killed rather than uh, violate. So how could she have now, of course, this uh, question assumes that a biblical uh, character is conformed to halacha. Okay, so that's just an assumption of Midrash. So anyways, again, Abai and Rava appear here giving answers to this uh, question. So what does Abai say? Esther karka olam hayata. Esther was like the ground of the earth. This, we can give a whole lecture just on this one line. But what does he mean? Uh, simply, she was uh, passive. As long as the Jew does not actively do the violation, but uh, 
passively lets the, the violation happen to them, they're not obligated to choose martyrdom. So that's Abai. Again, Abai focuses on the action. Did the person worship idolatry? Yes, they're chayev. Did the person, did the, the Jew actively commit an Avera? Or did they uh, passively let it happen? But he's focused on the action. What does Rava say? Rava mar hana'at atzman shani. When it's for their own a pleasure, the law is uh, different. Meaning, it matters why the non-Jew wants the Jew to commit a violation. If it's to uh, violate the Torah, then yeah, the Jew has to uh, choose a martyrdom. But if the non-Jew does not care about the Torah, he didn't care that she's a Jewish. He just wants his own a pleasure. And it has, Rebbe also brings another case here. If a non-Jew tells a Jew, cut grass on a Shabbat. If it's to feed to an animal, the Jews allowed to cut the grass. Why? Because it's because uh, the non-Jew doesn't care about having the Jew uh, violate Shabbat. The non-Jew just wants that. The Jew to to feed grass to their animal. Then the Jews allowed to abide. But if the non-Jew says to the Jew, cut this grass and uh, throw it in the river, it's a clear that the purpose of the non-Jew was was to cause a Jew to violate the Torah. And that is when a Jew has to choose martyrdom when it occurs in a public. So again, for Rava, the purpose, kavana matters. So here we see, and there's more uh, cases like this. I don't know, brought them here, no, I didn't. So Rava, for example, is the one who coins the term in Hilchot Shabbat, davar she'in mitkaven, that one is not uh, liable for uh, violating Shabbat if they don't intend uh, to uh, violate Shabbat. It's attributed to Rabbi Shimon the Tana in the Mishnah, but it's actually a Rava who coins that term, and we see in ruling after rule in a, in a very large range of areas, laws of karbanot, laws of nizikin, Rava can assistantly only hold one uh, liable if they have kavanah, if they uh, purposely want to commit a violation. And we saw that in the Gemara Rosh Hashanah itself, Rava makes this distinction. Remember we saw him say, are we? Um, the Gemara here. Latzeit lo bai kavanah. Laavor bai kavanah. To fulfill a mitzvah, you don't need kavanah. You don't need in uh, a tent. It's enough to just know you're doing the action. To violate, that does require kavanah. So how can we understand Rava's rule here? Again, Rava's rule, mitzvot entrikol kavanah, goes against the Mishnah. It goes against the clear Mishnah rules. Um, Two, we saw that it goes against even a religious intuition we would have. Shouldn't mitzvot have to be done with a uh, kavanah? Shouldn't we intend and have devotion when we do mitzvot? And three, we see that Rava is not consistent here because when it comes to Averot, when it comes to violations, he places supreme importance on a kavanah. Why then does he make the split with regard to mitzvot? So there are a few answers one can have. You know, um, the one I'm gonna, that I prefer is um, one that sees something unique in mitzvot. And first, we'll start with Av, Av Herot. For Rava, it seems he really, uh, to make someone a liable in an Av Hera, to make someone uh, guilty of having committed a wrong, Rava reacquires that the person want to do something wrong. And it's actually, there's a very interesting a parallel in Aristotelian philosophy. For Aristotle, 
it's not an act which makes someone a guilty bad uh, uh, person. What's the thing that makes a, a, a person a bad a person? It's wanting to do something a bad. It's having the, you know, in our terms, the kavana uh, to commit a wrong, to hurt another uh, a person. When it comes to guilt, it's the kavana, it's the will of the, the, of the person that defines them as a guilty person, as having done something wrong and which makes them responsible for their actions. So when it comes to mitzvot, you could just say, well, since it's not about, you know, the moral uh, guilt of the person, okay, it's enough to just do the act. And while we don't assume most people want to do something wrong, unless they specifically want to do something wrong, say that we can just uh, assume most people want to do the, the right thing. That's on one level. But I think we can take this to another level as well. And um, I think this is actually very powerful Gemara, and uh, telling us something about what does it mean to do a ritual. Um, as I said, the early... Uh, a Christian critique of uh, Judaism was that it's very uh, technical. It's just about actions. It's nit uh, picky. So there's nothing in a side. And that kind of uh, thinking persisted for a very long time. But there's a new uh, area in kind of anthropological research, which is rituals studies. And this new area has seen that when it comes to ritual, there's actually something very meaningful about the ritual act itself. Irrespective of what a person uh, thinking about it um, has at the time. And what do I mean? Um, that, there, that, that the very act, I mean, the, the very fact that a person does an uh, does an act which uh, constitutes a ritual that their a group gives meaning to, that their group ascribes a greater importance to, that is meaningful. So, you know, when I light uh, candles on uh, Friday, I can light candles right now, and that uh, doesn't mean anything. But when I light candles on a Friday, as the sun is uh, going down, no matter why I am lighting it at that moment. The fact that I'm lighting a candles because the group I belong to says that's meaningful, that is meaningful. The fact that someone goes to uh, prayers every morning, goes to tefillah, even if, you know, during their tefillah, their, you know, their head might be elsewhere and they might be thinking of a lot of other uh, things. But the fact that they devote this time to go pray with the text that, you know, our group has uh, given, uh, doing it in the way that, you know, has been a prescribed that is uh, meaningful to the group, those actions are meaningful. And I think what, uh, you know, one can read be uh, in this, uh, in this rural mitzvot in Sirichot uh, Kavana is the very uh, special place that ritual acts have, that their actions just in and of themselves are supremely meaningful, irrespective of what the particular a person has at the time that they're uh, doing it. So in Rava making this bifurcation in uh, different areas of law, he may be in a tri- in a tri- introducing ritual as this... Uh, special area of halakha that's unlike other areas of areas of halakha. So when it comes to ritual, it's the action that's meaningful, irrespective of the person's kavana. So as long as someone is aware that they are doing this act, which constitutes the ritual, which constitutes the mitzvah, and they are doing it at the right time that it's meant to be done, and they know that they are doing it, that in itself is meaningful and fulfills a mitzvah according to Rava. Now, again, that's not something that everyone agrees with. And we saw that's a subject to debate among the medieval Rishonim. And it 
continue to be debated amongst the Aharonim as well. But I personally find that to be a very a powerful message that Rava gives us with regard to mitzvot and our performance of them. And I think it really elevates the act of mitzvot, even if, you know, not everyone's able to have that level of uh, subjugating their uh, hearts every time they do a mitzvah. Mitzvot in Surikha Kabana uh, tells us that that's okay, that the mitzvah still has meaning and still meaningful and still fulfills one's obligation on a religious level. So, I think my PowerPoint will work now. <laughs> um, I have some of it. Okay. At least I can sum up. I had a whole few things here, but at least I can just tell you. Okay. Another time. Thank you all so much. And um, I don't know if there's time for uh, questions or this hour is uh, strict, but thank you. Gonna... Thank you so much for that. If anyone has any questions, comments, feel free to raise your hand right in the chat box or unmute. Now is the time. I mean, I will say that just on the point of, of rituals having value, they do have value, but clearly not like uh, we have the prophet uh, rebuking us by saying, I never asked you to come up with these sacrifices. They clearly had kavanah when they were bringing up the sacrifices, and clearly they were doing a very valuable ritual. But the Navi completely rejects it and says, hey, this is completely, this is a rejection of, of the entire service of God. So from a religious level, we do mm-hmm. see that even though rituals have value, they keep the community together and all of the things you were mentioning, but mm-hmm. it is rejected. Right, but it's not what proper. the... What the uh, prophets, first of all, I think it's really excellent uh, question. What the prophets mean is that if you're a bad a person, then your rituals are meaningless. Meaning don't do the rituals if you're going to be a bad a person. And, and all this stuff that the, that the uh, prophets were uh, uh, telling them to do. So that doesn't mean that rituals wipe away the uh, bad things. I just mean, you know, all things being equal, a ritual act in its own right I think is very meaningful. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this can even be, you know, used on a, a policy level. You know, I mean, it, just knowing, you know, Jewish uh, day schools. You know, the problem with a prayer and kids not paying uh, attention. But I think when we shift the focus and just have that mindfulness that kids be aware that we go to a school that we're in a community where. We take time every day to pray because we believe in a God. I think it's a very a powerful message. And I think that is, you know, something that could underline this sugya uh, and this uh, principle of what does it mean? That a ritual is meaningful, that it does have meaning. And again, that doesn't mean that wipes away uh, bad things. I mean, we call that you know, religious hypocrisy and <laughs> all things being equal. If you're a good uh, a person, you know, then rituals are meaningful, even if, you know, you're not able to uh, subjugate your heart. Like the Agata says, every time you pray and you might think, oh my gosh, you know, it's meaningless because I'm not having the right to have a every time I do mitzvot. So this is coming to say, no, it's not meaningless. There is a very deep meaning to a ritual act. Even if, you know, in your specific moment, you're not, you know, your mindset isn't there. Right. And Neil, you had a question? Yes, I was interested in how Kavanaugh develops, say, from an 18-year-old to a 28-year-old to a 38-year-old, through our, our lifespan. It's, it's not really the same, is it? And, and how that relates to ritual. Because you're going to, you're going to learn things ritually. And then Kavanaugh will come into it. I mean, it seems to me to be a complicated, complicated relationship between Kavanaugh and ritual. It's not, they're connected in some sort of way. You're going to, children, they're going to learn ritual. And then Kavanaugh will come in and as a sort of 70 year old, I'll think of things differently to than I did when I was 30, the sort of Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Wondering yeah, any sort yeah. of thoughts on that or any wisdom? No, I think that's also really an excellent point. Well, I, I think 
that's part of what the juxtaposition, you know, just showing this again, between that, you know, a black and white halacha in with this midrash of a Moshe raising his arms and saying, yeah, you fulfill your mitzvah. This is fine. That uh, doesn't mean there aren't more things you can aspire for. You can aspire for it. You can aspire for more and have something more meaningful and in eternal and at a different uh, points in a person's life. Whatever that is, it will be a different, um, the different needs we have, the different uh, places we're in. Um, but I still think what I think is nice about this is that it still leaves us base for even the act alone yeah. has a great uh, value uh, to it. Yeah. But this uh, tells us we can still aspire for more. But we can also be okay with just the act and find the meaning in the act. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, as you were just saying, that there, there is a lot of meaning, like something very moving about the fact that knowing a lot of people are lighting uh, candles or you can go That's into a shul, any, a place in the world. And yeah, there's uh, differences, Ashkenazi Sfaradi, you know, Mizrahi, but it's uh, basically very uh, similar. And there's something about just that act of, yeah. you know, there, there's a lot of different meanings and I don't even, you know, we each have our own meanings and, and what that means for us. But um, the the action itself is also meaningful. Yeah. Right, and, and we can and that still leaves space to aspire for more. But yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. Thank you. Though. OK. Anyone else? Okay, so I think. Yeah, if you would ask Rava, he would also tell you to aspire for more. That's what I got out of this. Is that correct? Um, you know, there. Like, what do you say? I mean, that's what the Ramban says. That's how Nachum Nachumanides explains it. He says this isn't actually even Rava's opinion. He's just explaining the father of a Shmuel's opinion so the Ramaban would agree with that um and hence he holds mitzvot srichot kabana as do really many of the rishonim and acharonim you know i i, I don't know if rabbi would say we should uh aspire uh, for more now i mean maybe this there's other ways to read it this could be rabbi's making it easier maybe you know Rebbe wants more people to keep mitz mitz uh votes you know so if you don't require kavana that just makes it you know he like you know uh spreads the umbrella wider over who fulfills a mitzvah and there are other halacho where um Rebbe seems to be motivated by judicial efficiency you know helping people things just making things more uh uh, practical so maybe this is just a practical thing more you know it's like how in uh, Israel the rabbinate you know has keeps more like lenient uh, standards for uh, kashrut so that more people keep kosher than making it uh, stricter so that less people will keep make that could be what's motivating rava as well I think there's definitely a lot of different ways to read it. Um, and also just again, that, that doesn't the, mean one can't aspire. Yeah, sorry. And also just on that, the, there's sort of like the, I believe Rabbi is talking from a, from a, they're having a legal conversation. That's the thing that, you know, the Christians push back on, but they completely don't have a legal system at all. So they just completely gave that up. So yeah. uh, he's he's talking mm-hmm. from the perspective of, if we're going to be whipping someone, we have to have a very clear definition for it. The moment you open the door and say, well, it's up to spiritual connection. How, how do you define that? And are we going to start whipping mm-hmm. people for not having proper no, spiritual yeah. connection? So, and no, and I think you're right. And I think we especially see that in the modern holds where people, um, you know, if religious a practice is based only on of healing, 
then that doesn't hold things very well. And, you know, it's re- a cause, the famous debate about the, the nature of uh, prayer between the Rambam, Maimonides, and Ramban, Nachmanides. And the Rambam says, you know, we have a set prayer we have to say every single day, and you have to do it, whereas versus a Ramban. No, when you feel it, you pray. But I think, you know, just based on what we see in the modern world, I think we know that if people would just pray when they've held it, then they wouldn't uh, uh, pray. And there's something, yes, it's legalistic, but it works. <laughs> I mean, it's it keeps more people uh, practice it when it's some, you know, when there's kind of these things you have to do, regularity. You know, uh, there's a nice way of saying this, consistency versus, I don't know, I, I can't, kavana versus kavua. Right, that's what it is. Kavana versus kavua. And there's something about uh, doing the act and being committed to the act, even if you're not uh, healing it at the moment. But the fact that you have a a commitment to it, first of all, I think that's meaningful. That shows what the values are. And that's part of what, you know, you know, Mitzvah in the Srichot Kavanam ritual uh, theory would say. But you also uh, do it. And it leads to uh, a practice. So... You know, again, while I know the natural inclination is, well, we have to feel it. But I think there's something just when we, you know, uh, stop and think about it. This really is the model that we end up uh, doing a lot and just kind of being mindful of it and appreciating the uh, value of a practice (laughs) Um, and giving just a value to that. Which is why I like this uh, so yeah a lot. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much, Doctor, for that extremely insightful show. Hopefully, we'll have you many more times with us in the future. And uh, let's up, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Thanks. I'm wishing you all a Chag Shavuot Sameach. Good morning or good good night. And Israel is pretty late, so thank you all so much. Such a pleasure.